Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, a verbal bruiser, an insufferable dinner party guest, and the bloke in the pub who could never agree to disagree. Just some of the words used to describe my guest today. But they don't come from his critics, they come from himself. And who is he? James O'Brien, the author, journalist, and broadcaster. For his critics, he is the devil in the devil's advocate. But for his million loyal listeners, he speaks truth unto power and prejudice every day on his LBC chat show. But you'd be wrong if you thought that you were about to hear the thoughts of someone who's made up their mind. As he says in his book, How Not to Be Wrong, there is no point having a mind if you never change it. James, welcome to Changemakers. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Let, let's start with, with that point. Oh, great. I mean, changing your mind. I mean, you are in, in the business of, of, of changing minds. But tell us a little bit of what that meant to you, because you were somebody that at one point seemed to have your mind made up. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I certainly thought that I had, Michael, and I, and I certainly thought that I had all, all of the answers. But what I've spent the last few years realising is actually I'd, I'd constructed almost like a sort of a robotic exterior, a suit of armour that meant admitting you were wrong was a place to which you could never go. And winning an argument had very little to do with being right or being wrong. And for me, psychologically, almost everything to do with leaving the other person in a, in a puddle of their own metaphorical blood lying on the floor. And, and I mean, it's hard to explain, but it works. You know, we, we look at the current political leadership in this country and this skill set of refusing to admit you've made a mistake in America and in Britain recently has delivered enormous success. And it worked for me professionally and career wise. Let's go on to that environment externally in a minute but I mean just on you I mean you are somebody that is you are the Marmite man I, I always think is that you know when I was talking to people about who you're interviewing I'll take James O'Brien go brilliant other people will say I mean I was just reading here how the sun described you as smug sanctimonious condescending and ob- obsessively politically correct I mean I'd, I'd probably think that could be a great epitaph y- you do inspire strong opinion right is that part of the brand Yes, that quote was on the cover of my last book, which probably answers your question about whether or not it's part part of the brand. I don't set out to annoy anyone, I, I, and I don't spend an enormous amount of time wondering why some people do take such a, a deep level of negative interest in me. I, I, I'm very proudly and prominently anti-racist, so if you're a massive racist, obviously I'd upset you. I always presume that's just what these people mean by by politically correct. But I think class is interesting here as well. I think because I've been a beneficiary of a public school education, I've had a very privileged background. And I'm quite happy to turn around and say, A, it's not really fair that people like me enjoy these advantages. But but B, crucially, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if, if, if my mum and dad hadn't made the sacrifices they made to send me to private school. And I think a lot of people who were born on third base they prefer to think they've scored a home run rather than having had advantage bought for them or given to them. And I think that's possibly a large part of the more middle to upper class negativity that I encounter is that people don't think anyone on the inside should point out how unfair the system is while simultaneously continuing to benefit from it. And we're going to talk about the new book, How Not To Be Wrong, or the paperback of the, of the book, How Not To Be Wrong. But I mean, the thing I, in terms of before we get into that, what I took out of the early part of the issue is that being right seems to be whether you're approaching this from blind tribalism or footballification or, you know, you, uh, th- this phrase you use, doing well to the point of being obnoxious, that, you know, th- 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 there is an importance 
in society for people feeling that they are in the right? I mean, is that is that where you were in terms of in terms of before the switch, before the change? Do you think when I started tracking back to the source of some of the strangest and and, and hardest to justify opinions? that I had, I was a little bit embarrassed to discover that I hadn't put a great deal of effort into arriving at them. But once they were arrived at, that's when the sort of negative psychology or, or in therapy speak, the inauthentic me would kick in. And and because I'm very good at arguing, I would be able to defend a position which I now know was wrong, not just wrong, but often quite unkind, often quite unpleasant. But we sadly inhabit a society that really lionises the gladiatorial approach without really properly analysing or examining the, 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 the quality or the calibre of the weapons being used. And that was very, very much me. I, you know, I do a lack of honour after knocking somebody out. In retrospect, sometimes they would have had right on their side, but they wouldn't have had the sharper blade during our clash. Was there a, a moment of realisation for you that this will no longer do. Was, was it as was it a lightning bolt yeah. moment, or, or was it? It's huge. Go on, tell, tell us about it. I don't know if it was a lightning bolt moment, or more of that scene in Star Wars in the in the rubbish chute where the walls start closing in, and you realise that unless you do something differently, it's going to end very messily. So a bit more incremental than the average lightning bolt, but but yeah, we, we had a <laughs> we, we had a, a, a terrible medical crisis in our family, and one of the people I love most in the world was was very, very ill. And I approached it like I'd approached every other battle in my life with with my fists up, my adrenaline pumping through my veins and my determination to make everything better by almost almost cajoling or forcing or even sometimes bullying other events and other people into what I thought would be the winning pattern. And, and I, if there was a moment of lightning bolt, it would probably be the realisation that I was making everything worse for, for everybody. And, and this is why I keep stressing that it works in so many circumstances. It's toxic and negative and damaging, but we inhabit this country where it works. These these so-called skills are, are powerful, but in, in the context of dealing with somebody else's illness, they were worse than useless. They were much, much worse than useless. They were actively harmful, and that, that was the point at which I thought, I've got to do something about this. I've got to do something about it. So I have to say, I mean, I, I read the book, How Not To Be Wrong, and I absolutely loved it. I thought it was, I thought there were so many lessons to take from it. But also I thought, I suppose, I think you and I are quite generationally similar. I think I'm a couple of years older than you, but I lost my, my sister-in-law to cancer. And my attitude was, you can win through, you can win, you know, that there was this kind of like, the idea that you can be right when ultimately you could only ever be wrong. And I felt, you know, there was so much in this book that I think that I think as, as a piece of storytelling about the human experience, I think it's, it's, it's a really beautifully written book. But I also think that there were particular things in this book that I think really do get to the heart of change, why it happens, why it doesn't, why we believe and why it doesn't. And I, I felt this phrase that you wrote, that the wrong done to us as children are the root cause of many of the things we do as adults. Bring that to life for us, James, in terms of what that meant for you and, what, and why you wrote that. Uh, at its simplest, in this instance, I began with the fact that when I first started getting paid for my opinions on TV and radio, I would argue sincerely, in, in, in the sense that I did mean it, I wasn't adopting a position for what well, they'd be called clicks now, but I, they, they weren't called clicks when I started, didn't exist. I, I would argue that corporal punishment was actually good 
for the child. And and so as I now as a father, and I realise that hitting children is never good for the child. So I tried to work back to where it started. And and quite obviously, compared to some of the other journeys I undertake in the book, it, it started at the age of 10, when I would be routinely beaten by by the headmaster at my at my prep school, my quite old fashioned prep school. And from the moment that you're standing there with your little hands out like this, and, and a six foot three man is, is raising his arm. And we always used to compare notes afterwards about whether the uh, the, the, the weapon he used had gone behind his ear or not because if he really didn't like you it would come from here and if he if, I don't know if he liked if he disliked you marginally less it would come <laughs> come from here and I started convincing myself it didn't hurt you know that face I always think of it's going to sound odd this but I always think of Patricia Arquette at the end of True Romance there's a face where you know and I know that that person is really suffering but they're damned if they're going to let anybody else in the room know it for so, so you've got that kind of and, and I started doing that at 10 in order to persuade myself that this, this man was not brutalizing me. It wasn't really hurting me. It's, it's only pain. It doesn't really hurt. And yet it was, it's the size of it, Michael. It's when I look at my 13-year-old, who's taller than I was when I was 10, and I think of me using all of the force I have to inflict as much pain as I could on her, it makes me want to be sick. And I'd never looked after that little 10-year-old me. I spent the rest of my life going... No, that's, that has not hurt me. That hasn't hurt me. Come on, that hasn't hurt me. Um, and that, that's where it started. And that comes out in the book in terms of it never did me any harm and, and stiff upper lip. But I thought, I thought for me, one of, one of the most powerful pieces in the book was the, the letter, two letters that you wrote to your prep school headmaster and the, and the public school housemaster, finishing off with Dominus uh, Verbiscum, where... You just felt the sense of release, did you? For you in the in that oh, letter, I mean, yeah. and 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 you got a real sense of what you must have gone through to have felt so strongly about it in terms of the way you expressed it. Couldn't believe it. I, I mean, again, if you'd listened to my radio show ten years ago, you'd have heard me poo-poo a lot of what is now fairly uncontroversial knowledge about mental health, particularly children. And and you know, I was very much one of those people who said, oh, that these newfangled acronyms to describe newfangled conditions. That was just called naughty back in my day. Give me a ring now and, and agree with me or disagree. So I, I was very sceptical about, it was therapy that led me to this place. And I was very, very sceptical about it. I, I, I was just desperate. And I thought, well, it's almost certainly not going to work, but I'll pop along and and see what happens. And and the, the woman that I was blessed to fall into the clutches of said to me, you, you, you are going to have to address your younger self and quite possibly address your teachers as well. And I thought she was nuts. I, I, I not in a million years. And then within a couple of sessions, there I am. And those letters, I, I don't know that I edited a single word or punctuation mark. They came out like streams of consciousness. And, and it felt like I mean, lancing a boil is a is a nice figure of speech, but it's just not adequate enough to describe what it felt like. It felt like a purging. It felt like all of this stuff that I had buried and stored up these festering swords had, had gone. It comes across yeah. that anxiety, that you know, that that personal pressure that I guess you know established education had given you. But given you, but I I think the other side of this story, which, which perhaps. You know, comes out more in 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 some of the interviews around the book is that there is another part of your childhood, which is that the superpower of your life seems to have been your family, um, and that actually, you know, in in the lockdown list that that goes with this episode, you talk about your father, Jim O'Brien. 
you you were adopted at an early age and get a sense of the love, the support, the belief that has inspired a lot of the life that you've gone on to live. And I thought a bit that spoke to me as as a dad of two young girls was when you talked about your father in in the sense that all the good things he was doing in his career with Bill Deeds and others were not as important to you as as a, as a son in terms of wanting to just spend great time with him and be with him. And I mean, and I think there is a kind of message in a lot of what you're talking about in terms of being a good parent, being a good dad, not only the kind of the analysis of the polemic and the problem. Mm. It, well, he was a brilliant dad. It, it wasn't it wasn't so much as a kid that I felt I wanted to see him more. It was more after losing him that I realised how much store he set my professional status. And and how silly that was, bless him, because what made him magnificent as a kid, I thought it was great that he was on the Daily Telegraph. As a young journalist, I thought it was fantastic that dad had scaled the heights. But when he wasn't there anymore, that, that, that didn't matter. What was written on his business card was meaningless when he wasn't there anymore. And so it was more that, and you see it so often, particularly with men, not exclusively, but or, or, you know, especially with men, still now, it's not necessarily a generational thing, is that they think that their value is based on their their role in the world, their status in in the world, and and it just isn't. Not in the context of the people who matter most in the world. That, that they wouldn't care whether you were driving a bus or, or or flying a plane, you know. But I think that's a truth that perhaps you you've learned. But a lot of people will feel that that status anxiety that you know that there is a there is a cycle here. I mean, frankly, James, you were on that merry-go-round for a while, working on Newsnight, doing lots of things that would have spoken to a similarly prestigious career in terms of how you break the cycle if somebody's sat there thinking yeah I want to define myself by being a good friend a good parent a good a good person whatever it might be is is there a is there a learning that you can have here in terms of how you make the change or is that just have you just got to find your own path I, I suspect the latter and I feel a bit fraudulent here because what happened to me weirdly is until dad died I was, I had a lot of status anxiety and it did shift something inside me, as I've just explained. But bizarrely, the minute I stopped worrying about all the things I hadn't achieved, I started to achieve them. So I'm very conscious of sounding either smug or, or a little bit naive when I say, oh, yes, don't worry about all the baubles and all the all the awards and the, and the book deals and the, you know, the radio accolades and presenting Newsnight and all, because I've done it. So it's all very well for me to say it doesn't matter. If I'd never done it, would I sit here today feeling as calm and at peace as I do? I can't say, Michael. I don't, I honestly don't know. But I do know that I genuinely stopped caring about it. And then it happened. So I can go back to 2013, 2014, when most people had never heard of me. And and before dad died, whenever my career was going through a... um. Uh, a fallow patch he'd always use that old john that old peter cook joke he'd say what are you up to son work-wise and i say, oh not a lot not a lot on at the moment dad i'm writing a book and he'd go neither am i son neither am i every time and so the, the, you know seeing a book in the cover <laughs> in the window of waterstones and things like that it, it has now all happened all the stuff i was resentful about not happening has happened so so i i don't think i am the person who, who, who can say try this try that but i can categorically say that when i stopped wanting it it started happening. Weird, weird. Well, let's go down two avenues that might well have some some explanation because in the book you wrote about therapy and also faith is important to you as well. And, you know, the, the thing about therapy, of, of which you've already said on, on our conversation, is that you didn't approach it in a serious way. But 
it became so serious that it basically shook the foundations of your very existence. I mean, that's what you wrote in in the book in terms of how important that was for you. A lot of people, they struggle with with a word like therapy because for all the reasons that you talk about is it's perceived potential. You might see it as weakness or you might see it as something that is sort of socially unacceptable, whatever it might be. But there is clearly the the case that a lot of people get a huge amount out of it. Tell us a little bit about what you got and what was the what was the kind of the inner release i guess in terms of what you were able to achieve with it, it it's i mean it began for me with with putting my arm around my 10 year old self and and telling him that i was okay telling him telling him that he was safe now but but what came from that was i i, I mean i i it's very hard to express this because i had no idea it was abnormal i had no idea it was in any way out of the ordinary but but from as long as I can remember, I woke up every morning with an enormous ball of tension in my stomach. I, I, I lived my life looking around for where the next attack was going to come from because I'd been brutalized physically and emotionally by adults at both of my schools. And then I, I sort of projected that into the into the attack is the best form of defense. So the reason why I was so verbally pugnacious and and, uh, and argumentative and, and always carried on after other people would have finished was because that was the way I would protect myself from getting hurt again. You see that that way I, I was somehow insulated or armored against it. And I had no idea that was abnormal. You know, I'd retch when I brushed my teeth because it would, I'd have that muscular contraction here. And, and, and that was normal. I thought, I don't know if I'd ever thought everybody else was like that, but I thought that that was the only way in which I could exist. And once we'd addressed or, or started work on on some of the childhood stuff it 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 sort of seeped up my life it seeped through my life because i i suddenly realized not that one should never fight but that if you're fighting all the time it, you're hurting yourself so phrases that began to pop up and really resonate with me like where where does your power lie so if i'm worrying about something or if i'm worrying about someone what I would have done previously, imagine you were going through a really tough time or you were really poorly and we were close and I would try and jolly you up. Come on, you know, we'll be all right. We'll deal with this. We've got through worse or even, and this, I don't know how this reaches other people's ears. But I can only tell it as it is because this is who I was. If you had a broken leg, imagine you broke both your legs and I would say to you, thinking I was helping, well, at least you haven't got cancer. I'd think that would help. So what what I learned was actually, why don't I just express huge amounts of compassion and concern for the fact that you've just broken both your legs. Why am I trying to persuade you that things aren't as bad as, as they just are? So, so where does my power lie in the context of interactions? What, what, what are you frightened of in the context of, you know, if someone rang my show to have a conversation about stop and search and, and I ended up, you know, kneecapping them, why? What was I frightened of? Why did I have to come out so violently? Only ever verbally with me, but I think the same applies to physical stuff with other people. And, and I, I worked out what I was frightened of, and then I would work out what are you so angry about? And quite often, the answer to the question why are you angry would involve you realizing that you didn't need to be. So those for me are like the three prongs of of, of progress. To that point, though, and and when you say you know I felt that was normal. Have you ever considered the fact that perhaps for a lot of people 
that is normal. That needs, you know, I mean, we hear the phrase fight or flight, that actually that feeling of fear, that feeling, I mean, you speak to a huge amount of people through your um, through your daily show on, on LBC. I mean, is your sense that that what you've gone through may be a much more common experience in, in the lives of people? And you kind of touch on it in the book where you say, well, look, you, you led it, you had a good life, but there were things that really stayed with you. I mean, that might be something about the human condition that, that, it, that is, is a very widespread and a very important thing for more and more people to confront. I think it is. I mean, that's largely why I wrote the book in the hope that I would be able to help other people. And I'm at pains in the early chapters to say my processes were private schools and, and monastic communities and boarding schools. But I think I try and tie it in with gang culture and knife crime because I think that these really early adrenalized experiences come from almost anywhere. And yes, I I mean, I know from people who've already got in touch with me that that it has helped them recognize reflections from their own lives and help them make decisions about therapy and about acknowledging the past and about getting help. And and the other thing, I mean, there's two strands to the book. There's that, which could almost be a self-help element. And again, if 10 years ago, you told me I was even going to use the word self-help in the context of something I'd done myself, I'd have laughed in your face. <laughs> I really would. I, I thought it was a ridiculous pastime process phenomenon. And the other thing is, as I wrote it, and it was lockdown, and I think this is why it went off in the other direction as well, I was watching the approach that Boris Johnson took to pandemic management. And I was thinking, oh, my God, that's exactly the approach I took to illness in my family. And you can't you can't you cannot argue or, or six form debating society your way out of an illness. And if you can't debate it out of an illness, my God, the chances of being able to somehow bluster your way with rhetorical skills out of a global pandemic are nil. And I wish that my fears hadn't been proved so lethally justified. So let's move on because the other thing that, that you've said is that you, you very cautiously dipped your toe back into faith. And I was wondering the degree to which that also was part of the inner knowing that you've, well, clearly that you're working on and and the questions that you're asking yourself. Yes, it's a good question. I, I, I mean, given the experiences I had at Ampleforth, the notion of institutionalised religion or institutional religion is, is still quite tricky for me. The way we imbue very flawed and, in, in my experience, very weak and dangerous men with a sort of divine authority is, is very dangerous. So I spent my 20s running away from religion. Unexpectedly, when I, we became parents, I found myself wanting my children to have some of the comfort that I'd drawn from religion previously But then the further into therapy I went, the more I wondered whether I'd actually used prayer in a way that I I was learning to use therapy. It was where I would go in my head to find peace. So I could sit in church in, in the way that perhaps other people do yoga or attend meditation. But for me, that was the place where I could clear my head. I was never a big one for you know, getting involved in the congregation. I do the readings because I'm a desperate show-off, but, but I wouldn't get involved, you know, the, the gossip and the parish organisation. And if I got on well with one priest, I, that, that was that was good enough for me. For me, prayer always involved talking to Jesus, this my own personal, my own personal Jesus, who is just good and kindness and peace embodied. And I, I did a bit of exploring when I was on this therapeutic journey I went to a Buddhist meeting and I I spoke to some other people and they all have that in common they all have that one thing in common about trying to empty your mind and move away from 
I, I guess a certain type of Christian might say earthly pleasures or something like that, but it's about not caring over much about the things that you can't control and prayer and faith for all the massive historical epic problems with that religion causes the, the notion of remembering how small you are and using that as a lens through which to remember how small your problems are i find incredibly helpful and and now i would struggle to separate the two to be honest right do you think spiritualism is what it is as much as anything else i mean is, is it that kind of mind i mean because you mentioned like the yoga mindfulness i mean is it that is it that search for the the bigger answers the inner peace i mean however you choose to dress it up in terms of what religion you choose i mean is that part of this do you think i don't know about the answers to the big questions i think that's possibly where religion begins to to get dangerous because it's it's making you unprovable promises whatever that may be but certainly in 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 the context of a believing that there is a little bit more going on at least a little bit more going on than meets the naked eye and that you know one of the other great phrases i took from therapy is is when the pupil is ready the teacher will appear now that all sounds a little bit yoda or a little bit zen but it's actually true it means that if you are making the right progress and doing the right work and that could be through prayer or meditation or therapy then actually the next lesson you wouldn't have been able to say what it was before you reached this stage but now you've reached this stage the next lesson you need to learn becomes clear and so that feels spiritual to me it feels bigger than quotidian and part of the inner connection that, that I suppose a lot of this, a lot of the book is about, a lot of the lessons of therapy are about, which is actually how do you connect to the, to the authentic you? I mean, j- just on the book, you deal in the book with some big issues. You mentioned some of them already, knife crime, racism, inequality. And, and I think, you know, f- for that reason, you know, it's a book that deals with serious issues, but it's also a book that has some laugh out loud moments. I thought the chapter tattoos, <laughs> private schools, and marriage, um, where you know you'll have to tell us all about. You have to tell us all about Nick from Westminster. I mean, there were some absolutely brilliant anecdotes in there, and I think the book does make you laugh. And I, and I guess that that self deprecation is also a big part of what you're about, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's. I don't know. I think in the past it was a bit of ego management. I was always conscious of coming across as a bit egotistical. So I thought, again, possibly out of self-defense, if I do the joke first, if I make the joke about me first, then it means I don't get hurt when somebody else does it. But as I've got, for want of a better word, as as I've got better, it's become so much clear to me that there's so much to learn from other people. And as a phone-in host, you know, I've still got some fears, but because I've become prominent by beating people up, I might be doing myself some sort of professional injury by adopting and growing into a very different approach. But what it really does is is open my ears. You know, the more the mouth is closed, I still talk far too much, but I listen a lot more than I used to do. And all of those examples, are, especially the tattoos one, are just how quickly, if you're open to change, if, if you're open to challenge, how quickly and how satisfying it can be to have somebody lead you out of your own wrongness and and you know I would previously have seen myself as someone who does that it's lovely being someone to whom and for whom it's it's done by others and and quite a few of my listeners have done it but but also I think that chapter in particular shows that you are comfortable with your own inconsistencies I mean this this isn't the Sermon on the Mount, is it? I mean, you know, the fact the fact about this this book is is as much about observations and the fact that it doesn't all act, need to add up to a 
singular pros on life and you know and, and, and as as each of those areas you know sort of demonstrate T- tell us about nick from westminster I, I love this this is it takes us back to where we started with regard to purchased privilege which is what what private education is but you know i, I i'm conscious that if i was in charge of the world i'd abolish it but i'm not i'm in charge of my family well, I'm not in charge of my family and my wife will be laughing her head off. I, I'm in charge of some. So I contribute to some of the decisions that, that, that affect our family. And, you know, patriarch, yeah, something like that. So, you know, if I could spend my money on a Lamborghini sports car or on giving my children the sort of education I had, it's a no brainer for me. But I recognise that that's politically hypocritical or politically inconsistent. Nick in Westminster used to ring my show. It took me a It may even have been a whole call. It may have only been on the second call that I realised it was actually Sir Nicholas Soames, Winston Churchill's grandson, and and he rang in. It was a lovely exchange, actually. I'm glad you've picked up on it because I I, I didn't know if it was a little bit... Was was he an irate caller? He was was kind of irate, yes, and it was about public school swagger. So some other education minister had talked about how we need to help kids at comprehensive school get public school swagger. Uh, Nicholas rang in to sort of challenge the idea and he was very sincerely and honestly arguing about schools in his constituency when, when he had one that were state schools but which were delivering epic education and really good pastoral care and, and, and advancement to, to children whose parents weren't paying a ton of money and I, I let him I let him make his point and he made it well and then I love this because this is honest and then I said but of course um you wouldn't have sent your children to those schools, would you? And there's this magnificent pause. I mean, I love silence on the radio, but this was pleasant because it was, you know, a nice bloke in a nice conversation. It wasn't somebody being smashed over the head with their own prejudices and then going silent for five, 10, 15 seconds. And, and Soames just comes back and goes, well, James, you you bowled me middle stump. <laughs> and, and it was a lovely... The reason it's in the book is because it, it, it shows sometimes... <laughs> How easy and how completely you can be compelled or encouraged to reverse your position. And so, of course, what I now know, and I didn't realise when that conversation took place because I hadn't written the book, public school swagger is the negative characteristics that I've been describing to you throughout this interview. Public school swagger is the David Cameron coming out when Johnson got COVID and say, well, I know he'll be fine because I've seen him play tennis. And and I'm sitting there thinking, no, the way you play tennis is not going to equip you with what you need to recover from a virus. And yet that mindset was mine. It's an important important part of the diagnosis. Isn't it? It, Absolutely it is. And it was my diagnosis. That's why I feel insulated from some sort of fears about smugness is because I was one of the worst victims I've ever encountered of precisely the problems and the conditions that I describe in the book. And and as I say, it it ended up making me potentially quite toxic in my own family. You've given us some excellent, lovely quotes in the lockdown list, which listeners will will no doubt get get a lot from. But one reflection I'd like you to give is, is, you know, in in the book, you, you quote, Robert Frost, the road not taken, which which I've always I, I've always felt just such a beautiful piece of prose. And t- tell us about why that, that that matters to you in terms of that road less travelled. There's two there's two reasons. The, the first is that that notion of status and ambition that we talked about in the context of my dad and thinking if if I don't do this 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 and this. You remember when Hesseltine famously jotted down when he was having lunch, I think, with Julian Critchley, and he jotted down, I'll be a millionaire by 30, I'll be in the cabinet by 40, and I'll be prime minister by the time I'm 50. And I've spoken to Lord Hesseltine about this, actually. And imagine if 
having not achieved the last bit of that, he'd felt that that somehow rendered the entire life a failure. If he hadn't achieved, which he didn't, of course, as we all know, it, it meant that being a millionaire by 30 was polluted or diluted as an achievement, being in the cabinet by 40, whatever the parameters were. Sometimes you're absolutely convinced that the path you want to go down is the only path for you and any other path would be failure. And failure is very much the word I, I, I would have used. So that sort of reason number one, why, why it is such a beautiful line to, to sort of, it's not what Frost intended, this bit of it, but it's it's what I get out of it. And then there is the bit that Frost did intend, which is plowing your own furrow. You know, the, 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 the road less traveled is the road in many ways that you're not supposed to go down. You're not supposed to question the the wisdom of of the road that everybody else is walking down and and in my case and again as we've touched on with the question of how many people live with that sense of tension and anxiety that fight or flight mentality there all the time not just it's the lizard brain isn't it it's supposed to kick in when you encounter a I don't know a bear in the woods when you're out foraging that's when you're supposed to have fight or flight you're not supposed to have it when you're in Sainsbury's so that that's the other bit of it the the, the road not taken being the being the sort of the the, the healthier path that you perhaps need a little bit of courage to go down a little bit of courage i'm wondering when you're uh, when you mentioned sort of michael Heseltine's sort of millionaire by 30 cabinet by 40 pm by 50 i mean is that is that the curse of meatloaf you know two out of three <laughs> ain't bad. i mean you know he's he's got to be actually funny enough, I, I have i have interviewed him before and he said that he thinks he's he'll be remembered as an entrepreneur, interestingly. But we are fast running out of time. And I wanted just one last reflection from you, James, because from a personal level, I mean, I, I interview a lot of people, but not half as many as, as you do. And I see you as a master of the craft. Thank and I, I thought you said this really well. The most important part of being a broadcaster is not how you speak, but how you listen. Give us a final thought on the art of listening. I'm still not very good at it. Actually, I, 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 for me, very personally, and, and it's a personal perspective, so I, I make no apology for answering it directly. I have the kind of brain, my brain moves quite quickly. So I sometimes know what you're going to say before you finish saying it. As a, and, and this is a question that you're posing to a broadcaster. So even though I know what you're saying, and I know that you haven't finished, but I know what the point is, I still have a tendency to jump in and start responding to it before you've actually said it, which is very, very frustrating for the listener. And I increasingly realise incredibly unfair on your interlocutor. I mean, it is, it's almost dismissive. So so just even when you know what's coming, the simple courtesy of, of stopping to listen to it, and then, of course, that contingent upon that is the danger of thinking that you know what's coming and getting it completely wrong. And, and I, I catch myself doing that as well. But, but the overarching lesson is, is, is one that I mentioned a moment ago, just that idea of what's your lived experience? Your lived experience is bound to be different from mine. We're going to have intersections. There's things we have in common, like daughters and a fondness for, for, for this sort of exchange, whichever side of the table we might be on. We'll have lots and lots in common, but there'll be things you've done and things you've seen that I have no knowledge of. And an old me would have, and this will probably make people laugh, but I was so adrenalized or so stiff up a lip or so never did me any harm. I would honestly have started an argument with you about your own lived experience. And somewhere inside me, I would have thought I knew better than you about something you'd actually been through. And and the the, the curse stroke, the blessing that I've carried is I would have been possibly capable even of winning the argument about what had happened in your life, even though it was your life. So the arrogance, the implicit arrogance involved in that is best fixed and best addressed by just 
by shutting the hell up for a while. But that that side of things is still very, very much a work in progress for me, as you've probably gathered. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, and, you know, work in progress. Well, you're doing pretty well with it, James. I mean, and thank you so much for joining me today. I mean, we could have gone on and on. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I always think about this when you're interviewing is that there are certain interviews where you go oh my goodness I've I've got so much I've got so much time still to cover and then there are others where you go have we run out of time but alas we have so thank you for being such a brilliant guest now I just have to say that James's book How Not To Be Wrong is is out now in in paperback well worth a read Um, and do join me next time for the next episode of Changemakers thank you Michael